Welcome to the podcast edition of the University of Queensland's COVID-19 and Finance webinar. This webinar was held on the 30th of April 2020 as part of the UQ Young Alumni Get Finance Fit series. Our first panellist and the moderator of today's conversation is Andrew Courtney. Andrew initially completed a Bachelor of Biomedical Science before discovering his real passion lay with finance. He made the switch from science to finance by completing his Masters of Commerce, majoring in applied finance at UQ, and is now the co-founder of wealth management firm, Plentitude Wealth. My wife and I ended up acquiring multiple properties and we renovated a few of them and, and actually got massive results. And I thought to myself, hmm, I'm onto something here. Our second panelist is UQ Bachelor of Economics alumnus, Effie Zahos. Effie is editor-at-large at CanStar and former editor of Money Magazine. She is the author of A Real Girl's Guide to Money, From Converse to Louis Vuittons, and provides regular financial commentary on TV and radio across Australia. I remember going for a job interview with him and he gave me a tip and he said basically, it's not what you earn that counts, it's what you spend, and I was sold. Our third panellist, Sean Bond, is also a UQ Bachelor of Economics alumnus. Sean recently returned to the UQ Business School as the Frank Finn Professor of Finance after spending 24 years overseas. Sean completed his postgraduate studies at the University of Cambridge, where he subsequently taught before spending 12 years teaching in the US. Sean is an expert in real estate finance and financial economics. You know, I often say to the students in my class, look, as a young person just graduating from UQ, uh, of course, that you're already a multimillionaire. Before we get into the podcast, just a disclaimer that the following is for general information purposes only. It is not intended to be, nor should it be, taken as specific personal advice. So keeping that in mind, here's Andrew to kick us off with the first question. First question is this, keen to reduce credit card debt in case my salary is reduced. What are your top tips? So look, Andrew, with regards to, to credit card debt, I'm not a fan of credit card debt at all. It's that monkey on your back that once you have is so hard to get rid of. And it's interesting, I have a 19-year-old that doesn't even really understand credit cards, and that's great. But in my era, credit cards were like your rite of passage. You, you know, you're 18, you get a credit card, and then off you go. What we're seeing right now with this pandemic is people that have a huge amount of credit card debt, obviously it is harder and struggling a little bit more than others. Nobody wants to get to, into a credit card cycle, but once you are in there, it is quite hard to get out of it. So if you're looking for, stra not impossible though, I don't want to be uh, like there's no hope, of course there is. A case with credit card debts, my first thing is what I say to people is, Forget the numbers, have a really good look at yourself and just go, why is it? Why do I do what I do with my money? I've seen people earn $200,000, $300,000, and I've seen people earn $60,000. And the people that are on $200,000 are more in the mess than those on $60,000. So that tip I gave right at the beginning, it's not what you earn that counts as what you spend. It is dead on. It's exactly what we should be thinking and doing with ourselves. Some solutions if you own some credit card debt is... Simple as, get a piece of paper, write down your debts, put them in order of biggest to smallest and put the interest rate next to it. There are a couple of methods out there you've probably heard like a debt snowball or a debt avalanche. A snowball basically crushes the smallest debt first. I like that because I'm more of a 
behavioural type of person. I want to know that I can pay my $2,000 debt off. I've done it, tick, I've crossed it, I then move on to the other one. If you start with a big one, it can really knock you down emotionally because it takes a while to do. Other people like the avalanche method, and that is you, you hit the most expensive. For these strategies to work, you've got to put your repayments down to your minimum so at least you're not getting a bad credit score or history. Get it down to the minimum and then focus all your cash flow on knocking that other debt down. You've probably heard of zero balance transfer cards. They sound amazing, don't they? Zero percent. There's nothing free as far as I'm concerned. Check the fees on that. It might have a zero percent interest, but the balance transfer could be as high as two to three percent. On a $10,000 debt, the effective rate is anything but zero percent. Watch out for that. That's the biggest trap with balance transfer cards. The other thing is you've got a balance transfer fee, maybe an annual fee. Um, and I'll just quickly state the other ones. You may not get your full amount. You could end up with two credit cards. You have to be a new customer. Sometimes you don't even know if you are an existing customer with uh, a person that underwrites other cards as well. So do take care with balance transfer cards. Some of them are, you know, 0% for 24 months. I've seen some ridiculous periods. Work out, can I pay it during that period? And whatever you do, don't use that card during that interest-free period. That's a pretty quick snapshot, Andrew. Was that okay? <laughs> sounds, sounds pretty good, Effie. <laughs> okay. Effie gave a great explanation. You know, they're, they're the key sort of like approaches a lot of people use. Um, and, you know, I am terribly sorry and aware that a lot of people are suffering and a lot of people have lost their jobs at the moment. So, you know, I, I just want to recognise that it, it's a tough time for a lot of people as well. Uh, and, and these are really challenging practical issues. So, um, you know, I think personally something I've found is always, you know, I try to keep track of my spending fairly closely as well. And I think by um, sort of like following FE's general advice of you know, being aware of what you spend, it, yeah, that's for me one of the key things that's been beneficial just at a personal finance level. But I, I know it's a tough time for a lot of people and I'm sorry that people are in that situation. And if I can just add, if you are in financial hardship right now, since we are doing a COVID-19 uh, finance webinar, um, there is financial relief in the sense of um, putting your repayments on hold for a while with credit cards, just like you probably heard with um, home loans and personal loans. Like I said, nothing is for free. If it is on, on hold, chances are the interest is accruing and it's adding up. So do speak to your lender as to what are your options and what are the implications of the options that you choose. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, one thing to add there is, look, in desperate, desperate times, call for desperate measures as well, right? So if you're running out of cash, if you're all out of cash, and you've, if you've, you've only got a credit card to, to kind of utilise, I think you're sort of forced to play that hand. But the key is to not fall into the trap of getting down that debt spiral because you could you could be you're stuck in there for 20 years, right? That's that's the challenge. Um, so so you really need to make sure you reduce as as fast as possible. Right? So I'm totally with you there. Brilliant. Second second question. I think this one's for you, Sean. Should I sell a rental property even at a lower value than pre-COVID-19 in order to be debt free next year after I retire? Great great question. And you know I, I must admit I don't have a crystal ball. And, you know, as Andrew acknowledged earlier, we, we can only give very general advice here. So, you know, anyone's got to look, anyone listening to us needs to consider their own situation in particular. But, um, you know, when I think about rental properties, um, I think the key thing, if you're thinking of selling, what, what's the return been for you? So write down and track carefully 
how has this investment performed? So you have to know, you know, what is it returning? You know, how good an investment has it been for you? Uh, and then um, obviously, you know, try to get a, a sense of what it's worth in the current market, you know, speak to a broker or whatever. Uh, and I also like to ask the question, would I, if I was in the market today, would I buy that? Or in the, the current situation you're in, would I buy that property knowing what I do today? And, and sometimes as you work through those issues, how, how has it been performing? You know, has it been a good investment for you? Do you expect it to continue to be a good investment? And is it the type of thing that you would buy again today? Um, you know, you've probably seen some of the commentary I've given in the media about house prices. I, I think undoubtedly we're looking at a more challenging time um, with regard to the housing market. Uh, you know, some of the headline figures you hear, that's going to lag what's actually taking place in the market today. So it's going to be a couple of months before the, the, the main indices that you hear um, you know, starts showing a potential fall. But uh, most, of the most of the commentary that you've seen out there indicates that housing's not going to escape this downturn. Uh, a lot depends on how long this crisis goes on for. You know, that's something we don't know. Uh, are we looking at something that um, will pass by fairly quickly or are we stuck in this sort of like lockdown world on and off with some freeing of the economy for a while but then having to lock down? Anything to add, Effie? Yeah, look, definitely support what Sean was saying with regards to if you're selling right now, buyers do know that you, there may be a reason why you're selling, you know, and, and there's not a lot of stock on there as well. So the, it's probably more buyers are in control at the moment than the sellers. Looking at the auction rates, the latest ones I could get, obviously, last weekend was Anzac weekend. So the, uh, these auction clearance rates are from the week prior to that and from Domain. Brisbane auction clearance rates were 25%. That's really, really low. And obviously the reason being is because since we've been in lockdown, well, we, uh, we can't do live auctions, we can't do open inspections. So that's to be expected. As Sean was saying, the actual numbers out there and the, the, the statistics and what they're showing, uh, Commonwealth Bank, I think, revised its prediction, 10% at least with property prices are expected to fall. There is no doubt about that prices will move. Um, if you are fortunate enough, this is a good opportunity. It is always the case that if you buy well, whatever the case may be, whether it's property, whether it's shares, if you do buy well and hold it for a long time, then you will hopefully do well. Um, it's unfortunate if we have to sell at down times, then we are realising those losses. And unfortunately, this is a time where some of us are going to see this as a great opportunity and others are unfortunately going to remember this as a period where they had to realise losses. Yeah, so just to add on to that, what you really need to consider is, is it worthwhile taking a loss right at this particular stage in time now? Can you hold on to it? Is it positively geared? Is it negatively geared? What kind of debt level do you currently have and how does that make you feel? Are you comfortable with that? Um, you know, if you want to be debt free and you're hell bent on being debt free, um, maybe, maybe it is the way to go, but you really need to kind of consider a few things, um, whether it be, whether it's positively geared, negatively geared, because if it's positively geared, maybe you can hold on to it for a few more years, potentially, like you got to, just like what Sean mentioned, look at what the return on investment is. If there's scope for growth um, over the next few years, you may be able to get out of it without a loss, right? So these are the things that you need to consider. 
obviously a time frame as well, right? If you're, if it's not really that big of a hit in your hip pocket, maybe you can hold on to it. And it's okay to be in debt when you're retired because if it's, if it's not that big of a hit on, in your hip pocket, it's all good, right? Mm-hmm. The key is to understand that you've got an income in retirement. And if you've got that income, if you're comfortable with that, you can make some moves, not forced to make moves, mm-hmm. yeah? Okay, next question. Sorry, can I oh, just jump button. Sorry, yes. I just want to, uh, Troy, I noticed you put in there 10%, you know, thanks, what, what, what amount will prices fall? There's no hard and fast rule, so I don't want people with the um, understanding that I've just said property prices, definitely 10%. They could fall even more. Like every other asset class out there, some could fall more, some could fall less. Now, Sean was saying, depends on how long this uh, health crisis happens. The longer it happens, the worse the situation can be. But, um, yeah, that was just one figure that came out from the Commonwealth Bank and they could be revising it as we speak right now. Absolutely. I've got a question here from Rachel. I'm grateful for the position that I'm in, but I've worked hard to get here. She's paid out her mortgage, car loan, no credit card debt. I have some shares, good super and managed funds and property. So what should I do to invest for retirement approximately 15 years away? And how aggressive should I be with the share market? Or maybe this is a question for me. <laughs> let me let me let me share some thoughts. Um, what you need to do as an investor, each and every time, like every time you invest, every time you make a financial decision, is understand that there are three key variables that you need to consider. There's the return on investment, right? There's the risk-free return that you can you can fetch yourself in the marketplace, and there's a cost of capital. So for you, Rachel, you've got zero cost of capital because you've got no debt. So the question that I have for you is: what is your risk-free return? Is it a term deposit in, in ANZ or CBA or one of the big fours? Or is it an access account at 0.01%? Or is it another thing, right? So you've got to ask yourself, can you park your extra money into an, into a, an asset that is producing a very, very low return, but very, very low risk as well? And then ask yourself, what kind of risk are you willing to take in the short, medium, and long term, right? If your retirement age is 15 years away, you're gonna ask yourself, what is your net asset position at this particular stage in time? And how much income do you think that net asset position can produce for you? And is that anywhere near close to what you're trying to achieve in retirement, right? Point A and point B. So you need to understand you gotta set some income goals and some capital goals. So what is your income goal in retirement? Every single person is different. Right, so you're going to set that goal and then work out what kind of capital you need and that'll determine what kind of actions you need to take, whether it be saving aggressively over the next 15 years or investing a little bit more aggressively. Right, so that'll determine what kind of moves you can make as an investor. Anything to add there, Effie or Sean? It sounds like a first world problem, which is great to be in. So <laughs> first of all, congratulations on being in that situation. Um, yeah, look, I, I would have to agree, Andrew, you are the financial advisor here, so I better not step into the realm of giving financial advice. If I would just add to that, once again, you know, congratulations to Rachel for being in a good position. I really liked Andrew's approach that, you know, particularly with, re- with regard to retirement savings, the goal really is to try to provide a stable income for yourself that's relatively safe in retirement and something that you're not going to outlive. Um, and so the question is standing here today, how do you reach that point? Uh, as Andrew mentioned, you know, I, I think too often our focus is often on short-term performance, um, but ultimately, particularly with regard to retirement savings, it's about how to generate that income we need in retirement and how mm. to do that, hopefully in the safest possible way, while also managing um, you know, longevity risk. 
Yeah. Okay, so now the question is then, how do you get to that point from here? It sounds like you already have some shares, uh, you're, you've got some superannuation. Um, so once again, I would say, you know, look closely, well, how is that invested exactly? So what kind of funds is your super currently in? Are you comfortable with that risk? What I, I think is important, and I think what the, the crash of the, this, like the corona crash um, has taught us is how comfortable are you with stock market risk? Uh, because what I worry about with a lot of people is I, I saw a lot of evidence of panic selling. So people were um, sort of like freaked out by the market crash and they sold and um, yeah, they, they've subsequently missed out on some of the recovery in the market. So I think thinking about what risk profile you're comfortable with now and putting in place a good long-term savings strategy with that money invested in a way that you feel comfortable with the risk. Because I think what you also want to avoid is so like these panic, you know, chasing the latest fad in the market. You know, think about when we had the tech boom and the so like the biotech boom and the Tesla boom. Suddenly, you know, we, we hear about these booming investments and everyone chases the, the latest and greatest. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, thinking carefully now about what broad risk profile that you're comfortable with uh, and putting that in place, being consistent with your savings goal, is very important. And Sean, I also liked how you were saying, looking at what you want in retirement. I, I always like to work backwards with my, with myself. What is it? How much do I want to live on when I retire? And um, I, I always have this saying that, the, you know, my greatest fear is wearing polyester and drinking cask wine when I'm in retirement. That's my little motto that I have for myself. So what is it that I need to live on? And then I basically, there are so many great calculators online too, uh, as for the super guru, some great tables with, you know, how much super, what will that get me, what my other investments will get me. And then I kind of do a, a budget, a forward thinking budget that this will get me this much. Is that enough for me in retirement? So yeah, I do like the idea of forward planning. Excellent. Good stuff. All right. Um, next question. What are your thoughts on buying property versus renting in this time of COVID-19? Sean, I think this one, uh, this one's a good one for you. We've spoken a little bit about so like the real estate market and what potentially could happen. And once again, I want to reiterate, I don't have a crystal ball uh, with regard to what could happen. But I think that decision, a lot of that comes back to what your own personal situation is like. Uh, I mean, if you if you were at a stage where you were ready to buy or thinking about buying anyway, then it, it's certainly something as long as you feel like you have a stable job. Uh, and once again, we're seeing a lot of uh, people having their hours reduced. So for some people, even if they wanted to buy, we know that's a, a challenging uh, time at the moment. A lot of people wouldn't feel comfortable with that type of commitment. And buying real estate is really expensive. And, um, you know, once you own a house, you also have to think about the maintenance costs, the rates, the insurance. So I think sometimes, once again, with housing, it's it's easy to be caught up in how well it's performed and, and certainly it's performed well. But what you don't hear about is all the money people spend on maintenance, renovation, um, rates. So, you know, I'm actually, even though I, I spend a lot of time researching real estate markets and I think in the right situation, owning a house can make a lot of sense. Uh, I also think there's nothing wrong with renting, particularly if you're early in your career, um, you know, I, I think for any young person, so like focusing on developing your human capital, you know, pursuing your career opportunities, pursuing higher education that helps set you up for the job that you need. So for some people, renting is definitely the right option. So um, you really have to think about those those other aspects of in your life in terms of are you ready to buy? Do you have the income to support 
both the mortgage as well as the maintenance that comes with uh, buying a house. And then also, you know, because it's so expensive to trade a property, are you anticipating keeping that property for a reasonable long period of time? Mm. Anything to add, Effie? Yeah, if I was looking at it right, right now, what we're seeing on the rental side is I'd be very nervous buying investment property right now because of uh, the yields that you possibly may get. But um, if you are renting, I suppose a, a good side to, to this is that we're seeing more Airbnb properties hit the market because there is no sh- kind of short-term demand for Airbnbs now. People obviously aren't going away on holidays or you know weekends and so on. They're flooding the market. They're putting yields down. You could possibly go out and find yourself a pretty great place and, and rent would be pretty cheap. So you could lock yourself in for a, a nice place and fairly cheap rent given there's so much supply of property on the market and then sit back and then, as Sean was saying, take that uh, advice as to looking for your, your next big buy. Yeah, that's my only kind of add in right now. Yeah, just uh, just to share my two cents on this, like when it's when you're renting versus owning. Look, it's neither here nor there. It's just it depends. There's no real hard hard and fast rule. It really depends on every single situation, every scenario. Because the the issue that you have when acquiring a property, as Sean mentioned before, is that you're going to need to hold on to it for for quite some time. So so if you are looking to acquire something, make sure you've got certainty in your job and in your income earning capacity at least for the next two, three to five years. Five years is is the more prudent way of going about it because. As, as Sean mentioned, it is very expensive to get in and very expensive to get out. Um, so ideally, you want to do your research, you want to do some solid due diligence, and you don't want to be buying a lemon um, for your first property, right? So that's, that's the worst thing you can do because it can literally slow down your investment journey for seven to 10 years if you get it wrong, right? So, so one of the key things that I always tell people is, well, how much rent are you currently paying? Right? And if you compare that to what the outgoings are for holding onto a property, what's the current market um, interest rate, you'd be surprised how much you think the comparable is. So let's say $500 worth of rent, it gets you $25,000 worth of P&I repayments. Right? So if I just do a quick calculation on, let's say, 5, 5%, so $25,000 divided by 5%, that's P&I, let's say, you can get a loan of $500,000. So the question is, are you willing to go ahead and take that, planning 5% here, $500 per week here renting versus $500 per week paying for that property. Now, the big risk is you're paying for the maintenance, the rent, and all the extra costs, right? So you've got to ask yourself, is it worth that while? Because if that property increases in value over time, and if you get the right one, obviously it does kind of creep up. And with the power of leverage as well, you get massive return on investment. So you've got to kind of weigh it up and make sure that you don't make a mistake because if you do make a mistake at the front end, it'll slow you down dramatically. Okay, hopefully that's helped. Moving on to the next one. Is accessing my super early a good idea? This one's for you, Effie, I think. I think you've got some interesting points for this one. Mm-hmm. And what are the potential implications or consequences if I do access my super early? Look, this is really interesting. This has been a, a hot topic, all about accessing your super. Should you access, access your super? Can you access your super to actually pay back debt or use it to buy a property maybe? It was something I put, actually, I asked the ATO directly on this because I was a little bit confused about would you take your money out of super? Can you take your money out of super and pay your credit card? The short answer to this was, surprisingly, yes. If you qualify for the early release of super, if you qualify for it, then there are no rules around what you actually have to use the money for. 
So there's no rules on what you have to or what you can't use the money for. So let me just be clear here. You must be able to it must be able to qualify for it. So the eligibility criteria to access super under COVID-19 now is you must be unemployed, be redundant, be getting a job seeker payment, or you must have had your hours reduced by 20%, or if you're a sole trader, you must have your income fall by 20%. So go onto the ATO's website for the complete breakdown there. So technically, you could be on $200,000, lucky you, your income has reduced, your, your hours, sorry, reduced by 20%. Technically, you can use that super money to pay off your credit card if that's your, if that's your financial woe. Now, take it back a step. The rules are you can take out 10000 this financial year and then 10000 again next financial year. So I believe at last numbers were about half a million Aussies have been granted approval and the average withdrawal amount is $8,000. So now that we've established you can take it out to pay your credit card debt, would you? Should you? So this is where you do probably need to get some good independent advice or even call uh, uh, the debt helpline and speak to a financial counsellor. This is something, it's funny, I, I spoke about this today on a, a live webinar for, for CanStar as well. It seems to be a really hot topic. So if I had $20,000 debt on a credit card and it was charging 17%, and I paid only minimum monthly repayments, it will take you uh, most of your life to pay off, but it will cost about $44,000 in interest. That's assuming you only make minimum repayments. So we've worked out what the debt costs you. What is the cost of accessing your super early? You've got to find that out as well. So the Industry Super Australia ran some numbers, and it basically said if you're, say, 25, and you take the 20000 out, and you do nothing to, to catch up with that money, you could fall, find yourself a shortfall of about $120,000 when you retire. So here we go. These are all just numbers and scenarios, and you can cut and slice the numbers any which way you want. So I've got $120,000 potentially lost by, not putting, uh, by taking it out of my super versus $44,000 on my credit card. It seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? I'll pay off my uh, credit card. But you can do this. You can take the 20000 pay off your credit card, don't play catch-up on, on your super, and then rack up another $20,000 on your credit card afterwards. That's a financial mess. So you've really got to be honest with yourself and ask these questions. Why am I taking my money out of my super? Where is it going? Have I done my sums? And have I got expert advice to work this out? On the property side, I'll just be quick there. If you are eligible to get this money, that means your income has dropped. A lender right now will probably not give you a home loan if your income has dropped. So you might need to sit tight. Although I did get a question, someone said, can't I take it out and just put it in an online saver and wait till, the, wait till I get my job back up again? I'll leave you to play with the numbers, but I don't think it's what it was in, the spirit of this relief was intended for, but people are asking it and people are doing it. Anything to add? Uh, you know, Effie got a great response. She's obviously much more aware about the rules around this. The only thing I would mention is um, obviously, you know, if, if you're in a real dire situation at the moment, you've got to do what you have to do to get through. I understand that you know, some people have, are struggling to put food on the table. So, mm. uh, you know, if that's your situation, good luck to you and, and you know, think carefully about what you're doing. The other thing, though, when you think about your retirement savings, really that's the money you're going to have available to you or need to have available to you when you're 75, when you're 85. So what would... I like to think about what would the what would the seventy five year old me say to me today if I was thinking about a choice like that? Because you're really taking money from your future self 
in order to deal with this situation now. Now, as I say, it's um, maybe a mental, uh, a way to help rationalize that situation. But, um, you know, think about what the future you would say, because you may well need that money when you're 65 or when you're 75 uh, or when you're 85. When you're 85, you just can't go out and get a job to top up your retirement savings. Uh, so think carefully before making a choice like that. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, question for you, Sean. Do you see similarities in how the market is responding to the pandemic compared to the GFC? And what are the differences? Yeah, great, great question. It was interesting. Yeah, um, to some extent, you should listen to what I say and do the opposite. <laughs> because well, in terms of the history of my career moves, um, I, I moved to the UK, uh, sort of like in the, the mid-90s recession. Uh, and so I had terrible timing there. Uh, then I moved to the US at the start of the financial crisis. Um, so I had terrible timing there. Uh, and then just as I moved back to Australia, I came here, bought a house, settled into my new job, and then we went through the bushfires and then the corona crisis. So, um, you know, every time I do a job move, it's a terrible time for the world economy. So, um, as I said, that, that's a, a challenge. But, you know, I saw firsthand what happened in the US. You know, thinking about it in simple terms, I think the global financial crisis was like someone having a heart attack, okay, because, you know, the, the global economy overdosed on sort of like low credit quality subprime housing loans, and that clogged up the financial system, and this continued for a couple of years, and then suddenly sort of like the, the economy had a heart attack because the, the financial system got choked with this bad debt. Uh, so it was a very long, long recovery. I mean, we refer to it as the jobless recovery for a long time because it took five or six years, certainly in the US. I mean, Australia was a, a little less impacted by the global financial crisis than many other countries were. Um, but in the US, um, it, it was five or six years before we see any job growth. That's because the nature of the financial crisis, it's such a deep shock to the financial system, it takes a long time to deal uh, and unwind all of those decisions that were made and deal with that debt. But I think the current crisis, I mean, what's so shocking about this, it's almost like a car accident so, or, or a natural disaster. You know, if the, the global financial crisis was a heart attack where the financial system seized up, you know, this has been a bit like a, a, a natural disaster or a car crash. Because, you know, overall, while there was some signs the economy was starting to ease off a little, and even in Australia there was talk of a, are we heading into a recession, suddenly we went from... You know, uh, well, in, in fact, you know, the stock market reached its highest level in Australia on the 20th of February. So, you know, even through till February, you know, the outlook, while we are aware of the looming crisis, uh, we went from that point to suddenly, you know, just stopping uh, dead almost. You know, the, the global economy got locked down. Uh, so that's a very different type of crisis. As I say, I think of it almost, almost like a natural disaster. In the, the impact that it's had. And I, I think this is why some of the policy responses from the governments around the world, it's really about trying to get through the time of lockdown yeah. uh, and then keep businesses alive, keep households in a reasonable form that when we get through this crisis, the economy can pick, pick back up again. Yes, very interesting. Effie, any, anything to add? Yeah, I just want to add on, Sean, that was a, a good point where you were saying with regards to the market being at its high in February. I actually looked at these figures today. So the S&P ASX 200 hit a high on February 21 of 7,139. It then dropped down on the 23rd of March right down to 4,544. That, you know, that's huge. 
and I know we don't have much to compare this and you would know this better than me, Sean, the GFC, I would imagine is completely different to this crisis. But when it comes to super, since we were talking about this, the thing that I do like about super, it's for saving. It is our money. It does give us that retirement income, but it also is diversified. So when you look at the GFC, which hit, what, 2007, 2009, the share market dropped 50%. But it was interesting when you look at some figures that Industry Super Australia brought out to show what happened with a balance fund. Did a balance fund fall 50% during that period? Um, no, it didn't, because when you invest in super, normally it is diversified across different asset classes. And if you're in a balanced one, it's probably 50% growth shares and 50% not. So they showed an example of someone who had 100000 in their super fund just before the GFC hit. And then what happened over that period, 2007, 2009, it actually fell just over 20%. So the balance fell down to $78,000. It took about three years for it to recover, so 2012. If that gives you any comfort, you know, things did move up and that was the time frame it took. Again, who knows what this situation and how long will it be, but that was the case with the GFC. And I, the reason I like giving that example is it does give some people some understanding that just because you see on the news the share market's fallen that ridiculous amount, your super balance hasn't because it is diversified. Yes, diversification is key. I mean, I think far too many um, novice investors tend to just go black and white shares or property, one or the other, and they don't really realize that there are a plethora of other underlying assets that you can invest in as an investor. Right. So, so it's very, very important to sort of read up on it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a ton of information out there online to really get a good grasp of what's available. I noticed there's a few questions about ETFs. You know, look into it. See, see what's available. See, see if you can track the market. See if you can track the, the ASX 200. There's a, there's a few ETFs available that are nice and cheap. You can just ride the market. And so long as you've got a long-term um, investment horizon, it's very, very hard to go wrong because you're essentially betting on the Australian economy, right? Historically, we've done very, very well, similar to what's happened in America, right? So if you've got a long-term time horizon, it's great to get in, right? Because they've obviously taken a hit. So the big question is, what are you going to do with your funds at this particular stage in time? Unfortunately, if you're not aware, if you're not privy to what kind of things to look out for, it's very, very difficult. And you may need to take a kind of a step back and just kind of watch, watch this thing unfold. Right. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more and you need to take that stance, the question is, well, do you think the market's going to go sideways, going to go up or going to go down? What's going to happen? What's, what, how, how long will this um, COVID-19 pandemic last for? And what's the, the effect of quarantine? Right. Recent numbers just came out with a GDP of America of the US actually dropped by 4%. So that's in, this, in the first quarter. What happens in the next quarter? And how will the market actually react to that? So the American market is actually quite buoyant post the crash that they had there. So it's interesting to see how that's going to happen. Personally, for me, I've got, I've got a bit of money in cash and it's been sitting there for quite some time because I was quite sure whether or not to invest because it was kind of getting overvalued. A bunch of assets were just ridiculously overpriced. But unfortunately, not everyone can keep an eye on the market. So what you need to do is diversify accordingly and make sure, make sure you don't try and pick the winners or the short term. Now, if you're really interested in kind of getting into it, you may need to get your fingers burnt a little bit to get more experience and read a ton of books and make sure you kind of uh, 
don't throw yourself into it too deeply, right? Because you could lose a ton of cash. So invest for the long term, right? And dollar cost average if you can, and just protect yourself out there. Yeah, very, very important. Cool. All right, next question. If we are unemployed now as a result of COVID-19 situation, what is the best way for us to invest or manage our finances? So this is a three-part question, actually. As young working graduates, how can we position ourselves financially to take advantage of the current conditions? And should I consider investing in the stock market as prices are low at the moment and are there signs I should look out for? So let me just quickly answer. I mean, if you're unemployed, the first thing that you need to do is protect your buffer. First and foremost, I wouldn't be looking to invest. I'd be looking at wonder, looking at lowering my cost as much as possible. I call it the minimum viable lifestyle, right? Lowering that as best as you can so that you know you've got a runway for the buffer that you currently have. And then the next course of action is to find that job. If you can't find the next job, guess what? You may need to look at Fiverr, Airtasker, whatever it may be to top up that buffer, because if you start to eat into your buffer, what's gonna happen is over time, you're gonna have less and less options for yourself and desperation starts to kick in and that's when you know things can get really chaotic in life. So you need, you need to protect that buffer. So if you have that buffer in place and it's a sizable one at that, i.e. six months maybe, uh, potentially one year's worth of expenses, then you can, can potentially look at investing. And yes, the market the market has crashed. We're currently running a project at the moment where we're filtering through all of the, the shares in the ASX 200 to see which ones have crashed more than 50%, more than 60, more than 70. Maybe you can look at their balance sheets if you're au fait with these things and see which one's cashed up because a lot of businesses are actually really, really solid businesses. It's just the market sentiment that's actually pushed them down. Right. So those are the key things that you need to consider. As working graduates, how can we position ourselves? Look, you need to, just like what, what Sean mentioned, you need to work on your careers. You need to be highly skilled. You need to be valuable in the marketplace so that you're constantly um, employed because that's the number one asset that we all have. Your ability to earn an income is huge. You need to protect that thing. Right? You need to build your skills up. Anything to add, Effie or Sean? Um, if you're in that situation now, all of us, I mean strip to a crisis budget. I throw all money logic out the window if I'm in that situation and put in what's called a crisis budget. So sometimes money, normal money rules don't apply when you've got a crisis budget. First step is exactly what you said, Andrew, you've you got to, what income have you got in? So count all your beans. And by that, I mean, can you get JobKeeper, JobSeeker? Have you got the um, air task as Andrew was talking about? What's your, what's your money coming in? Then if you've got any assistance or relief or help, put that in, implement that in. And then normally when we talk budgets, we talk saving buckets. Forget that. You want to get now to expense buckets. Set up three expense buckets. I like to have a must-have, a need-to-have, and a love-to-have. And you know what I'm going to say there? Get rid of the love-to-have. There's no room now for shoes or cushions, which are my two biggest vices. And get rid of that bucket completely and focus on your must and need. And they'll be different to different people. Obviously, your must is shelter, food, utilities, that kind of stuff. Need can be very different in this time. It's a crisis. For example, right now, I need Netflix and Stan. There's no way I'm going to have two kids in the house without something to entertain them while I work. So that's what I mean by need. And the other one, get rid of. Preserve your cash flow. As Andrew was saying, you really got to preserve that and look for different ways to preserve that. For example, of all times, my vacuum cleaner went on the blink. So how did I buy one? I'm not using cash. I used all my points. 
Was it the best way to use my points? Absolutely not. But I'm not going to be flying anywhere soon. So right now that preserved my cash flow. So that gives you a bit of an example of what I mean by that. So yeah, that would be my tip right now is to put in a crisis budget. Best way to spend this weekend. Anything to add before we move? Great, great suggestions. And you know, um, just in terms of thinking about investing in the stock market, I know Andrew mentioned about analysing individual shares. I would say for a lot of people, um, thinking about a broad-based index tracking fund to get your exposure to the market is definitely worthwhile thinking about. Um, you know, obviously, if you're more familiar with investing, uh, then you may have a different strategy you want to follow. Generally speaking, we know from experience, most people can't outperform the market. So for most of us, having a, a low-cost index tracking fund as a way to get your stock market exposure uh, rather than trying to pick winners is sort of like what I would recommend to, to most people mm. uh, in that situation. And then, so like, as you've also heard, sometimes, particularly for our superannuation money, uh, often we're investing through our portfolio of assets. So like, um, it could be a, a balance fund, like Effie mentioned. So that's going to include a little bit of the stock market, a little bit of the bond market, maybe some commercial real estate as well, something like that. So uh, once again, for a lot of us, for our long-term savings, where we're putting that money aside regularly, that's a, a great way to do it without getting caught up in a, a lot of the other analysis. Excellent. Good stuff. Okay, so before we wrap up, there is this question that stood out to all of us. Um, and we'll, we'll finish up with this last question. And this question is, what is one smart money move you should have made but did not when you just graduated from university? Who wants to uh, tackle this one first? <laughs> sure, I, you. Go. I well, don't even know the answers to these ones. <laughs> yeah, great question and, and kudos to the person who asked that because I, I think that's very insightful. You know, I often say to the students in my class, look, as a young person just graduating from UQ, uh, of course, that um, you're already a multimillionaire. Uh, it doesn't seem like it and you don't have millions of dollars in the bank, but what you have is your human capital. Okay? You're going to have the next 40 or 45 years of, of working. So to some extent, what you should be thinking about is how can I do as much as I can to increase the value of my human capital? Uh, and, and then you have to really nurture that carefully because that's a huge asset, as I said. It's a multi-million dollar asset for a young person graduating today. Uh, so that's very important to be thinking about uh, and let that dominate your thought. Uh, and, and then so like, if you're, you're sure about the direction, if you're comfortable with the direction you're going with your career and, and so like how are you going to start your working life or, or heading to your working life, then that's when I think it's also good to be thinking about a long-term uh, strategy. So uh, your question was, you know, what, what do I wish I would have done differently? You know, to, to some extent, I've been fairly fortunate because I took a few risky decisions uh, and that paid off. And, and one of them was I, after I, so I graduated uh, and I had a great position in Brisbane, like well-regarded, I actually took a risk and decided to go back and, and give up my income to go back and do graduate studies. Uh, so for me, that turned out to be completely transformative as well and really changed the direction of my life and has given me a great academic career to pursue. Uh, so I, I, to, to me, that was the big risk I took was giving up a, a, what seemed like a good career uh, and I'm sure what would have been great to go and, and sort of like pursue my dream to be an academic. For me, that, that was a great thing to do, but for any young person, think a lot about how you want to develop yourself 
Maybe I should uh, answer next. The, the biggest mistake or something that I did not do was research. So I came out, started, started to work, and my lovely wife, girlfriend at the time, was hell-bent on getting me out of my parents' home. <laughs> um, started to work, um, earned my first paycheck, and essentially, I, I had enough of a savings at the time. The banks were lending like 98%, right? So, so I ended up borrowing 98% and buying this one-bedroom apartment in Bud's Beach Surface Paradise, yeah. right? It was good at the time, don't get me wrong. But the problem was, if I bought well, if I did research, if I knew what I was doing at the time, if I just took three to six months more to learn a little bit more before getting in there, Right. If I didn't succumb to the pressure of my uh, lovely wife, who I love very, very dearly, <laughs> I would have made probably a hundred thousand, maybe two or three hundred thousand dollars more because I kept that thing for ten years. Now it didn't increase in value. That is the biggest mistake, financial mistake that I made. But in saying that, you do learn from your mistakes also. Right. Do not let let your mistakes or failures cripple you because it makes you stronger. It makes you better as an investor and as a person in general, right? So really, I mean, it's an interesting question. Do I see it as a negative in my life? Look, I see it as a catalyst for massive personal growth and personal development as an investor and as a human being for me. So I don't really see it as a mistake. I always try and see the silver lining, but it was, it, it was, I certainly would be in a, in a much stronger financial position today if I took away three to six months and did a little bit more homework before acquiring that first property. Do not buy new. Whatever you do, it's the numbers got to stack up tremendously because the builder, the developer, the marketer, the agent's got to make their cut. So this is there's a lot of carrots being dangled in front of us, and just make sure you do your homework if you're buying new. On to you, Effie. Well, I must say, Bud's Beach is a very nice place of the Gold Coast. I have been there a few times being a Gold Coast girl. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't call Bud's Beach a bad investment. <laughs> um, mine would definitely be, and I, and I can see this day crystal clear, when I graduated, got my first job and the first paycheck was coming, um, they brought around a financial advisor and he was trying to get us to salary sacrifice. Now, what 20-year-old wants a salary sacrifice their first paycheck? Not me. I didn't want to do that. And that was probably, that was my biggest regret. And I know a lot of people either love super or hate super, but my mate Darren did this. And I said, are you crazy? And it was only $50 each fortnight he was going to sell salary sacrifice. And I said, no way, no way. I really should have because when you've come out of uni, you're poor ass. So, you know, you're not going to notice 50 bucks missing from your pay. So whether you put it in super, I guess my tip here, it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. The, the tip here is that small change goes a long way. You know, if you look after the sense, the dollars will definitely follow. And believe me, time goes fast. Time moves fast. So if you can come out of uni, you're used to living poor and broke, you're used to it, and you get your first paycheck, Put some away. Pay yourself first. And in the ETFs that Sean and Andrew are talking about or super, whatever your flavour is, go for it. And you will just thank me when you're my age and you look back and you go, yes. Fantastic. So I just want to thank both Effie and Sean for coming along and, uh, and presenting and, and sharing your, your insights and thoughts. They're very, very valuable. Lots of experience behind your words and wisdom, Matt. It's, it's, it's brilliant to have you on board and uh, we look forward to working with you in the future. Um, Effie, a little bit about yourself and a call to action for you. If you want to follow Effie, Effie, take it away. 
Uh, yeah, just quickly, um, I do do a free newsletter. It goes out every Monday. It's called Money Mondays with me. I have a bit of a rant. There are four stories from experts across Australia, usually property, investing, super, something like that. Thank you. Excellent. All right, moving on to me. Um, so follow me on Instagram for daily finance tips at Andrew David Courtney. I always present and every single time I present, I start to record and I've got a few webinars and seminars up on YouTube now. So feel free to have a look at my YouTube account and my Instagram or link up with me on LinkedIn. Sean. Uh, finally, you know, I, I just want to mention, I know some people have mentioned about unemployment. But the YouTube Business School has put on a couple of their online classes at a very reduced price. I think this is normally over $500 as a result of the current crisis. Uh, I believe you can register for these classes for around $8. I think there are three um, reduced offerings that they've put up there. So um, once again, a couple of people have mentioned about unemployment. It could be a good time to brush up on your skills if you've got some downtime. So that might be something you want to look at. But uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to everyone. And I'm glad I had this opportunity. And, and I, I always learn something from Andrew and Effie as well. So thank you to my other panelists. No, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys and share thoughts. It's brilliant. Thank you. I, always. And I too learned so much. Next time, I think we should do it over some cast wine. <laughs> sounds good. Uh, we have polyester as well. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with our experts, Andrew Courtney, Effie Zahos, and Professor Sean Bond. If you would like to hear more from UQ experts, then check out our range of webinars and podcasts on the UQ Alumni website, or follow UQ Alumni on social media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.